On December 17th, uh, 2003, uh, the Wright brothers, they flew the first ever airplane. In 1896, Henry Ford drove the first ever Model T car. On March 26, 1953, Jonas Salk announced the cure to polio. On January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs unveiled the first ever iPhone. And on November 1st, 1983, Al Gore created the internet, allegedly. (laughs) Now, one truth we see in the book of Genesis, or in Genesis chapter 4, and we see this truth play out in the world, is this truth, that the development of culture, knowledge, and technology brings much blessing into the world. That the development of culture, knowledge, and technology brings much blessing to the world. Imagine how different your life would be uh, without a car or without airplanes, or without the internet. Or imagine how, life, how different life would be without an iPhone or modern medicine. And packed into this truth, the truth that the development of culture, knowledge, and technology brings much blessing into the world, there is a subtle lie. And here is the subtle lie, that te- technological progress equals moral progress. That as we develop as in the culture, as knowledge advances, as we make Uh, discoveries in technology, this equals moral progress. And the logic of this lie is simple. Now, we look at people who lived 100 years ago, or 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, and we understand that they had less knowledge, less technology, they were more primitive, and therefore they were not quite as intelligent and not as morally developed. This is how we think naturally. You know, today we are modern, we are civilized, we have more knowledge, we have more technology, we're less barbaric, and therefore we are more intelligent and more morally developed. And so we believe the lie that tech- technological progress equals moral progress. But what we're going to see in our passage this morning is the truth, and here's the truth, that technological progress does not equal moral progress. Technological progress does not equal moral progress. It's good that knowledge increases. It is good that technology develops. But knowledge, the advancement of knowledge and technology, cannot solve our problem of sin. The the solution to, to our sinful problem, our sinful hearts, it's not more knowledge and technology. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at our text under two headings this morning. First is technological progress. And second is moral corruption. And what we're going to see is that as technology increases, so does human corruption. So does human sin. So let's start with technological progress. And there are five details I want you to notice that will help us get get a running start into the text. Number one, Cain is alive. We're going to see that Cain is alive in Genesis chapter 4. Cain murdered his brother earlier in the chapter, his brother Abel, and he ran away from God. And yet God has allowed him to live. God did not kill him. He allows Cain to live. And Cain could have turned back to the Lord. He could have worshipped God. But he didn't want to do that. Cain was steadfast in his rebellion against God. And so he went away from the presence of God. Number two, Cain is married. Cain is married. Genesis 4, 17, Cain was intimate with his wife. It doesn't say he was intimate with some woman. He was intimate with his wife. Now, who is Cain's wife? This is the age-old question. Who is Cain's wife? The answer is his sister, that Cain marries his sister. He didn't have a lot of great options. If everyone descended from Adam and Eve, which everyone has descended from Adam and Eve, and if Cain was the firstborn child, then his options are nobody or his sister. 
Now, was it sinful at this point in human history to marry your, sin, your sister? The answer is no. Uh, was it weird? Certainly yes. Uh, it was weird to marry your sister. It's weird to marry your sister uh, at any point in human history. Just for the record, you shouldn't do it. But, if it. but if everyone descended from Adam and Eve, which we all have, then Cain married his sister. Number three, Cain is a father. Cain is a father, verse 17. Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. This is not the Enoch from Genesis chapter 5. This is the first Enoch. We'll learn about the second Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. And I'm sure when Cain looked at Enoch and held Enoch, baby Enoch, I'm sure he thought about his brother Abel. I'm sure he, he realized what a terrible sin he committed by killing the son of his parents, Adam and Eve. I'm sure he wondered what Abel would be like if he were still alive. And Cain is a father, and God in his mercy allows Cain to, to be a father. Number four, the fourth detail is that Cain built a city. Cain built a city. Then Cain became, became the builder of a city, and he named the city Enoch after his son. So this indicates that he loved his son. You don't name a city after your son if you don't love your son. He's overjoyed by his son. He loves his son, and he builds a city. And to be sure, uh, this is a primitive city, but a city nonetheless. And over time, Enoch grows up, and he gets married and has a son named Irad. Verse 18, Irad was born to Enoch. So not only was Cain a father, he became a grandfather, and a great-grandfather, and a great-great-grandfather, as we will see. Scholars call these people the Cainites, that the descendants of Cain stayed in the city of Enoch, and they're just multiplying in this city. And so it is in the city of Enoch that we find the first city in the history of the world. Number five, culture, knowledge, and technology developed. This is what we see in chapter four, that culture, knowledge, and technology develop. Verse 20, Ada bore, bore Jabel. He was the first of the nomadic herdsmen. Uh, some scholars say that this phrase, nomadic herdsmen, is the idea of strategic breeding. It's the idea that Jabel is the first person to figure out how to, how to maximize the productivity of cattle or herds. That he was the guy who spent all his time with the cattle figuring out how do we maximize the productivity of cattle. So farming is developing near the city of Enoch. Verse 21, his brother was named Jubal. He was the first of all who played the lyre and the flute. And so here's the discovery of instruments and music. The arts are developing here in the city of Enoch, and this would have been a thrilling thing. I mean, there's no, no instruments, and now there are instruments. I mean, this, is, this would be an incredible discovery that was made. Verse 22, Zillah bore Tubal-Cain, who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. And so we see the development of metalwork tools and weapons. It says that he was the first of all, all, of all people in the history of the world to figure out how to turn bronze and metal or tools, or iron, into tools and weapons. It's an incredible thing. And this is what we do as human beings. Over time, we pass on knowledge and technology. We pass it on and we develop it. We are creators. That's what we do as human beings. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing that people think and solve problems. It's a good thing that people take risks and, and, and come up with wild ideas about how to change the world. It's a good thing that technology develops. This is a gift of God's common grace. The idea of common grace is that God is so merciful and good that he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
He causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. And see, the Canaanites are not worshiping the Lord, and yet God allows the, the Canaanites to develop in knowledge and technology. Imagine being a farmer, planting your field year after year, and then someone develops a plow. How that would just change everything. Or if you're a fisherman and someone develops a good net or fishing pools. Recently, uh, a tree died in my backyard, a huge ash tree. And so it had to be cut down, and I was cutting it up with a chainsaw on Monday. And uh, while I was using the chainsaw, uh, the entire time, I was thinking to myself, praise God for chainsaws. Praise God for chainsaws. I love chainsaws. First, it made me feel a lot more manly than I normally do, just holding a chainsaw. And secondly, I thought without a chainsaw, I would spend the rest of my life cutting up this tree. I mean, if that's all I had was an ax, I would spend the rest of my life cutting up this tree until the Lord Jesus returns. And so tools and knowledge and technology are such a blessing. They are a blessing for us. And we should praise God for technology, the development of culture and knowledge and technology, even if it comes from people who hate God, that God in his common grace has allowed technology to develop in the city of Enoch. At the same time, we need to recognize that technological progress does not equal moral progress. Technological progress does not equal moral progress. As technology develops, humanity keeps sliding down the slippery slope of sin, that people are not getting better, people are not getting more righteous. People aren't worshiping God more and more. They're, they're sliding down the slippery slope of sin. They're getting more and more corrupt. And this is the second heading, which is moral corruption. Moral corruption. And the moral corruption of humanity is highlighted by the great-great-grandson of Cain, a man named Lamech. And there are three truths about Lamech I want you to pay attention to. The first is that Lamech has two wives. He has two wives. This is the first sign of trouble. He has two wives. Lamech is the first polygamist, polygamist in the history of the world. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah. These are the names of his wives, Ada and Zillah. This is the first documented deviation from God's design for marriage. And in the book of Genesis, whenever you see people deviate from God's design for marriage, one man, one woman, one lifetime, whenever people deviate from God's design, there you will find disaster. And I would encourage you, anytime you see people in the world today who deviate from God's design in marriage, there you will find disaster. You will not find human flourishing. And so, Lamech had two wives, the first polygamist. Number two, Lamech is a murderer. Lamech is a murderer. Verse 23, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. This is not self-defense. This is murderous vengeance. And we're supposed to notice the unequal response of Lamech. For I killed a man for wounding me. This is not proportional. It's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is excessive revenge. He goes on to say, a young man, it means a boy. He killed a boy. Probably a 10-year-old, 12-year-old boy, not a man. He killed a boy for striking me. This is even more egregious. To kill a man is not acceptable. To kill a boy is not, it's, it's, even, it's even less acceptable. And almost certainly, he, he was related to this boy. It might have been his nephew or maybe a cousin. These would have been his family members in the city of Enoch that he put to death. And this vengeance is inside of each one of us. I don't care who you are, what home you grow in. I don't care what you've experienced. Vengeance is part of the human heart. 
If you are strong, if you are physically strong and capable, the strong say, if you hit me, I will hit you back 10 times harder. And if you are weak, you say, if you hit me, I will hate you back 10 times more. If I can't actually do anything about it, like people, they they look at another person, they say, if I go at you, it's going to go bad for me, so I'm not going to actually go at you. What I'm going to do is just hate you. I'm going to hate you with every fiber of my being. And so Lamech highlights the resentful, murderous, vengeful nature of our hearts. And this hateful, resentful, murderous vengeance that's inside of our hearts, it manifests itself in so many ways. In so many ways. I remember years ago, I was sitting at a bagel shop. It was early in the morning. I used to go there all the time, study the Word of God. And often I would be there by myself. But this particular morning, there were two ladies, uh, probably in their 70s, that were sitting there enjoying a cup of coffee early in the morning. No one is around. It's just me and these two older ladies. And shortly uh, after the ladies walked in, there was a man who came in with two of his kids. Probably he, His kids were probably three and five years old. And again, the, the place is empty early in the morning. It's pretty quiet. And the dad goes up to the counter, orders the bagels, orders the coffee, and the kids start running around, and they're chasing each other. And they're getting a little bit louder and a little bit louder and a little bit louder, and this three-year-old girl, roughly three-year-old girl, bumps into the table of these two old ladies. And the ladies are a little bit annoyed, but the kid doesn't even acknowledge that she bumped into the table. And she just keeps running, and they're squealing and running and squealing. And this girl's about to bump into the table again. And this old lady reaches out before the girl bumps into the table, reaches out, grabs the girl, and says, stop running. I thought, oh boy. Okay, so this is what's going to happen here. Then the dad turns around and watches. He watched what happened. He he saw what happened. And so he goes over to these old ladies, and, and he says to them, don't ever touch my kid. Don't ever touch my kid. And I'm like just a few feet from this. I'm just sitting there, and I'm watching this whole thing unfold. And the old lady responds, the sweet old lady responds by saying, I wouldn't have to if your kids were under control. And then the dad, he tried to have a clever comeback, like a clever, but it just, it came out as mush. So it was like, old ladies, and then the old ladies responded by laughing in his face. They're laughing in his face. And we all know there's nothing worse than old ladies laughing in your face. It's terrible. And so I promise this next thing happened. The man is standing there, they're laughing at him, and he grabs a cup of coffee, their cup of coffee, and he throws it on him. Throws it on an old lady, on an old lady. And then the other old lady picked up her warm bagel and threw the bagel at the man. (laughs) Picked up the, the tray and threw it at the man. And then they stood up and they started screaming at each other. They're screaming and then everybody got kicked out. It was a complete disaster. And I thought to myself, why did this happen? I mean, it happened over a little girl bumping into a table, and it escalated and escalated and escalated, and everyone's getting kicked out of the bagel shop. Why does this happen? It happens because of the nature of human beings. And you might think, I would never respond. I would never respond that way. I would never do anything like that. Maybe you wouldn't. That's an extreme example. But one thing I know about you is that you're prone to resentment. You're prone to bitterness. You're prone to, to hating people. This is how we are wired. We, we hold on to things that have been done to us and we replay them in our minds. And even if we don't physically kill someone, we kill them in our hearts and we kill them with our tongues. And this is Lamech. This is the revenge of Lamech. This is the heart of Lamech that we see. 
He's a murderer. Number three, Lamech is proud. Lamech is proud. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. First, I think it's interesting that he's referring to himself in the third person. (laughs) He says, wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. All week long, I've been calling my wife Meg, wife of Dan, please listen to my words. <laughs> she loves it. She's really loved it. I'm just kidding. But, but why, it's, so, it's just so strange. Wives of Lamech, I have something very important to tell you. What is that thing? For I have killed a man. For I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He is boasting about his murderous heart and behavior. He's not hiding He's not running and hiding from his sin. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they they ran and they hid. When Cain sinned, he ran away from God. And now, Lamech, he is sinning and he is boasting in it. He's beating his chest. He's like, wives, look what I did. I killed this man and I killed this little boy who took a shot at me and I killed him. And almost certainly, he used the technology of his son to kill these two people. It was his son who developed metal tools and weapons, steel and bronze tools. Almost certainly, he used those tools to put these people to death. Almost every commentator I read this week highlighted how technology has a dark side to it. There's a real blessing to technology, and there's a dark side to it, that painkillers are an incredible blessing when you're in pain. But then people get addicted to them, and it ruins, ruins their whole life or the internet, or social media, the list goes on and on. There's a real blessing in technology, and there's a dark side to it. And it is our sinful hearts that leverage knowledge and technology to maximize sin. To maximize sin. I mean, this is what we do. You know, in World War II, there were 73 million human beings who were killed. 73 million human beings killed in a six-year period of time. And almost all of them, an enormous percentage of them, were killed one at a time by other human beings. I mean, this is the heart of human beings. Just look at the world that we live in. And so Lamech is now boasting about his sin. Okay, so what do we learn from the passage? It's kind of a depressing passage. But what do we learn from the passage Well, there are two big ideas, two things we need to walk away with. First, you need to think about your legacy. You need to think about your legacy. This applies to married men and women and men and women who are not married. You should think about your legacy. Genesis 4 records the legacy of Cain, the Cainites, and it's devastating. From one generation to the next, as civilization is developing, as knowledge is advancing, as technology is moving forward, we see the legacy of the Cainites descending deeper into sin and idolatry, running away from God. But then in verse 25, we have a glimmer of hope. I I love the scriptures because so so often, uh, as you move down into sin, into despair, into hopelessness, you find these little glimmers of hope. And one of those glimmers of hope is in verse 25. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For Seth said, God has given me another offspring in place of Abel since Cain killed him. So God gives Adam and Eve another son named Seth. And Seth has a completely different legacy than Cain. 
Verse 26, a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is how Seth is described. When he has a son, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This sets the trajectory of Seth's line and legacy. Noah will come from the line of Seth. We'll meet Noah in chapter 6. Abraham comes from the line of Seth. We'll meet him later on in Genesis. And ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who comes from the line of Seth. And on average, people do not think about the legacy they leave for future generations. On average, what we think about is right now. What do we want right now? What is it that we care about right now? We don't think about the long-term impact of our attitudes, our decisions, our faith or lack of faith, our obedience or lack of obedience. We don't think long-term. I read a story this week about a man named A.E. Winship. And he's a relatively famous American educator who lived in the late 1800s. That's when he did the majority of his work. And he studied the genealogies of two families. The first family was the family of Jonathan Edwards. And the second family was the family of Max Juke. Both men started their families in the early 1700s in New England. Max Juke was a godless man who married a godless woman who lived a godless life. Jonathan Edwards was a godly man who married a godly woman, Sarah Edwards, and they lived a godly life. And A.E. Winship was able to identify and study 1,026 descendants of Max Juke over the course of 150 years, and this is what he found. He found that 300 died in childhood, 67 died of syphilis, 190 became prostitutes, over 100 became alcoholics, 280 lived in abject poverty, 200 of the 280 were homeless, 150 were convicted criminals, of which seven were convicted murderers. This is one legacy. It's like the legacy of Cain, where it just keeps, that legacy continues to descend downward. But then you have Jonathan Edwards, and A.E. Winship studied 729 descendants of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. And what he found is that there was one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three, S, or three U.S. senators, three state governors, three mayors, three college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 300 pastors, 285 college graduates, one U.S. United States vice president, and I think this is interesting, and all were Iowa State Cyclone fans, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but you can just do whatever you want to do with that piece of information. But the contrast could not be any clearer. And here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. Do you want to be a wise person? Do you want to be a wise person? Here's what you need to understand. Your choices today will influence you the people around you, and future generations to come. Your choices today will influence you, the people around you, and future generations to come. The man that you are right now and the man you are becoming will have far-reaching implications into the future. 
And the woman that you are right now and the woman you are becoming will have far-reaching implications into the, the future. And if we're going to walk with God in wisdom, wisdom would teach us to think about the legacy we want to leave. I mean, moms and dads, or future moms and dads, what kind of spiritual heritage do you want to give your kids? What kind of spiritual inheritance do you want to give your grandkids and your great-grandkids? I mean, what legacy do you want to leave? And I, I want to be clear, I am not saying you should follow Christ for the sake of your kids. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you should follow Christ for the sake of Christ. And what you do with Christ, here's the thing, what you do with Christ will have a dramatic impact on your family. It will. That if you learn to navigate your life by justifying your disobedience, where you don't trust Christ, you don't obey him, you have no heart for lost people, you don't love the body, you don't trust him with your money, you don't worship him, that is the... That is the spiritual inheritance you give your children. That's what you give them. And the flip side is also true, which is a thrilling thought, that if you walk with God, that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you trust him, you worship him, you love the body, you love his word, you love the mission of God, you love the people of God, that is the inheritance you give to your children and your grandchildren. And I'm not saying everything is going to work out perfect. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there is a, a dramatic impact of your choices on the lives of your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. So what kind of legacy do you want to leave? And I'm just going to tell you this because I, I love you guys. Your children will not accept your excuses. They just So all the excuses that we accumulate over time for why we don't obey God your kids will not accept them. They, they won't say, oh, my dad didn't follow Christ because he was tired. Or he was a little stressed out. Or, you know, my mom, she didn't walk with the Lord because it's boring. It's like it doesn't work that way. Your kids will not accept that. Nobody accepts that. It's just an idea that we have in our heads. And so we, we, we ought to be dead set about loving Christ for the sake of Christ in his kingdom. And then we better understand the impact that will have on our kids. Genesis 4, 26 says, A son was born to Seth. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And this is what I would like. This is what I would like for my family, that we would call on the name of the Lord. That we would trust God, that we would worship God, that we would obey God from the heart, and we would help other people to do the same. I mean, that's the type of inheritance, spiritual inheritance you want to give your kids. You know, if my kids or my grandkids, uh, they cure a disease, or they build a city, the city of Dan or whatever, I mean, that would be cool, I guess. That would be cool. But what I want more than anything else is for my kids to know and love and worship Christ. And really, that's it. That's what I want more than anything else. And so think about your legacy. Think about what you're doing with your life. Are you, are you going to give your kids an, an inheritance 
of knowing and loving and worshiping the Lord Jesus, of taking steps of faith, trusting him. Number two, second application, second lesson, forgive from the heart. Forgive from the heart. Genesis 4, 24, if Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech, it will be 77 times. Lamech is an example of excessive revenge, of obvious pride. Thousands of years after Lamech lived, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, and he reflected on the story of Lamech. And this is what he says in Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So how many times should I forgive someone? They sin against me? Do I forgive them once? Twice? They sin again? They come back? Do I forgive them a third time? A fourth time? A fifth time? A sixth time? Even a seventh time? Look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. See, the words of Jesus echo the words of Lamech. They're just the exact opposite. Where the heart that is dominated by sin is excessive in revenge and resentment, but the heart that is saturated in the gospel of grace is excessive in forgiveness. It is eager to forgive. Not seven times, but 77 times. The nature of our old life and sin could be summed up in Lamech, that Lamech had no regard for God. He was sexually immoral. He was proud and sought revenge. But see, our new life in Christ can be summed up by saying that we are God-centered, that our whole lives have been reoriented to center on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're God-centered and we're pursuing sexual purity and that we're humble before God and one another and we give excessive forgiveness that we overflow with forgiveness. The forgiveness that we receive, we give. We freely give to others, even at great personal cost. So I want to ask you, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to forgive? Who is it that when you think about them, all that comes to mind are all the things you don't like about them and all the ways you're, you are resenting them and all the things that they did to you or said to you or didn't say to you or didn't, or, you know, just all the things that come to your mind. What, who is that person? Who do you need to forgive? And are you even willing to forgive them? Now, you may be here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you're right, I need to forgive. Okay, how do I do it? Well, I want to quickly just give you three tips on how to forgive. Quickly. One, commit to forgiveness. This is premeditated obedience to God. Just resolve. If I'm going to walk with Christ, there's no room for resentment in my life. There's no room for bitterness in my life. This is premeditated obedience to God. Commit to forgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 2, we see that Paul knew that the devil would use resentment and revenge in our hearts to corrupt us from the inside out. That resentment and revenge, bitterness in our hearts, it is poison. It does not improve our situation at all. Number two, you need to know that forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. 
Forgiveness does not equal reconciliation. I think sometimes we conflate these two ideas that if we are going to forgive someone, that means we have to trust them right away, that the relationship needs to be reconciled right away, but it's not the same thing. These are two different arenas. Forgiveness and reconciliation, they go together, but they're not the same. They're not identical. And so to forgive a person, it does not mean you trust them or the relationship is restored. You know, one time I went on a vacation with my family, and uh, someone in the church, they asked if they could borrow my car. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to be gone. I was going to be gone for like 10 days, so I said, great, I'll just, I'll just, uh, yeah, you can have my car, whatever, no big deal. And when I got back, someone who was very reliable informed me that the guy who was borrowing my car, he was driving all around the city, and he was using drugs in my car, he was selling drugs in my car, and he was having sex with women in my car. And so the next, next week at church, I walked up to him and I said, uh, 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 <laughs> what is this I heard? And what's going on here? Uh, and, he, and he confirmed all of the details. And so I, I immediately lit my car on fire. I just said, there's just no turning back. Like you can't, I just couldn't even look at my car the same way. I thought, what in the world is this? Now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I forgave him from my heart, even though he didn't apologize. I forgave him from the heart, but I do not trust this man. The relationship hasn't been restored, but I harbor no bitterness towards him. Forgiveness, forgiveness is a one-way street. It is a one-way street. Reconciliation is a two-way street. It is a two-way street. Sometimes relationships cannot be restored. Sometimes reconciliation cannot happen. That's why Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But forgiveness is a gift that you give to other people. Not because they're worthy of it, but out of obedience and worship for God. And so it's not the same thing. So the first step in our hearts, we just say, I'm going to be committed to forgiveness. I'm not going to let resentment grow up in me. Number three, forgiveness is not a feeling It is a promise and a process. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It is a promise and it it is a process. Sometimes people will say, I don't want to forgive someone. Someone hurt me or they're continuing to hurt me. And just for the record, if someone is continuing to, to do something bad towards you, you need to get other people involved with that. But when you're thinking about what's been done in the past, you might think, I don't want to forgive someone. I don't feel like forgiving someone. And I understand that. And I don't, I don't want to minimize any pain that you've experienced. And I don't want to justify any wrong that has ever been done to you. I do not want to justify that in any way. But I do want to say that resenting someone does not improve your situation. Bitterness towards that person does not improve your situation. So in many ways, it doesn't. It, how you feel is important. It's important. But it's not the decisive issue. The Lord is asking you to forgive them. And so forgiveness is a promise. Even if you don't feel like forgiving, it's a promise. That's what you're doing. And you're entering into a process. And sometimes people will do something, they'll hurt you, and it's quick. It's just, you can forgive them and you never even think about it again. But sometimes this is what happens. This is what happens to me. Something something is done to me, said to me, or whatever it is, and I keep replaying it in my mind. And what forgiveness is, it is an act of my will saying, I 
have forgiven you. By the, by, the, by the grace of God, I have forgiven you. And when those thoughts come back into my mind, I grab those thoughts of bitterness and I say, I'm not going to hold it against him. I'm going to take these thoughts to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might have to do that a hundred times before you feel any different. It is a promise. I'm not going to hold this against them. That doesn't mean you trust them. It doesn't mean the relationship is restored. It just means I'm not going to keep running it through my mind and reminding myself of how terrible this person is. I'm not going to charge them with sin. I'm going to take those thoughts and bring them to the cross. Take those thoughts and bring them to the cross. And over time, your feelings will change. Your feelings will change. Colossians 3.13, just as the Lord forgave you, how did he forgive you? Were you worthy of his forgiveness? Did you clean up your life? No, at the height of our sin when we deserved it the least, least that, is what, that is when Christ died for us. That's when he gave up his life for us. Just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. You must. So must you do also. And so brothers and sisters, don't be like Lamech. Be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what he said when he was on the cross? As he is being tortured to death for the sins of others, remember what he cried out? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The only way our hearts get there is through the gospel of grace. So brothers and sisters, don't be like Lamech. Be like the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of forgiveness. We know it's a gift. It's a gift of your grace. Thank you for the gift of righteousness. We know that's a grace that comes from your hand. I pray, Father, that we would not be resentful that we would not be bitter. I, Lord, I know that there are terrible things that have been done to people in this room. But help us to remember that bitterness doesn't make anything better. Lord, I pray that we would be the most forgiving people on the planet. Eager to forgive. Excessive in our forgiveness because of what you've done for us. That's a supernatural work, so please do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.